0: Resurrection Sunday 2018. I hope you are blessed. I wish I could play an Open Fools joke, but because it's past 12, we are, um, yeah, the joke would poke, apparently beyond me. But let me start with a question. Now, years ago, I remember receiving a uh, an invitation to join a competition with the prize being, do you want to receive a two million upfront if you win or a hundred thousand a year for the rest of your life? Now, if you've got that scenario in your head and as you, as I was many years ago, looking at that thinking, what would I choose? What would you choose? 100,000 a year. A lot of I've heard of a lot of that. Don't spoil it for me. So, how much would go how many people will go for the 2 million up front? The 2 million up front? 100,000 a year for the rest of your life? And not many people taking that? A lot of people in the middle? Do you need more time to think it over? All right. Well, why, why am I asking that? Well, in some ways, I'm asking that because I wanted to see how optimistic you are about the future. For the young amongst us, 100,000 for the rest of our lives might seem like, yeah, I'll, I'll chance it. You know, people living to 90, 100, you know what I mean? That could be good. But maybe the financially frugal amongst you are thinking, wow, the pound could drastically depreciate. 100,000 in 20 years' time might be what you need to pretty put on your meter just to get the gas to run for a... Some of us are probably thinking a little bit closer to home, where Brexit is just around the corner and the pound could drastically depreciate by this time next year. So, how optimistic are you now about the future? How many will take the two million now? <laughs> Today's passage from First Corinthians fifteen, I believe can help us change conventional wisdom around. And I mean that quite literally. From what Paul is gonna teach us, and what Paul had has taught those, obviously living a lot longer before we have, was that, is a bird in the hand really better than two in the bush? We've heard that proverb. What I have now is better than what I could possibly have in the future. So why not just take what I have now and use that? In God's economy, I think you'll find that the two in the bush is worth the risk. So if you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 i going to be reading a bit of a lengthy chunk, I mean, you know, by the grace of God I've been convinced that I probably shouldn't tackle the whole chapter, but I think Paul only really repeats himself in the second half anyway. We're going to be reading from 1 to 34, I'm reading from the ESV, I want to read, I want to pray, and I want to try and break it down. So if you're there, you can say amen. Lovely. that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. You are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ... Whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by man came death by a man also has also has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all died so also in christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it is, but when it But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks on this Resurrection Sunday, Lord, as we give thanks and offer our worship, Lord, and that as... As this is the day, in Lord God, which the church was birthed some 2,000 years ago. It's it's not of little significance that Christians right from the very first century, Lord, have, have come together and gathered and acknowledged that this is the day that has made Christianity possible. That has given hope and light to the world. Help us not to neglect that. Help us not to diminish that in our sight. Help us, Lord, to see that as the big thing it is and always ought to be in our lives. Teach us from your word there, Lord God. Teach us by your spirit those things which are true. Those things which, Lord, I may have forgotten. Those things which I'm not gripping onto as I ought to. Reviving me the blessedness of what this day means for all time. Teach us that we might worship you all the more truly, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the context? There's no point me kind of proceeding on without kind of highlighting what Corinthians is all about. If you're familiar with it, you'll know that Paul goes through lots of problems that this church has. I mean, literally, chapter after chapter, he's dealing with marriage. He's dealing with uh, eating food to sacrifice to idols. He's dealing with um, Christians, taking other Christians to court. There are many issues within the Corinthian church that he's trying to unravel. So what's the problem? Well directly in relation to this chapter greeks culturally never believed in a bodily resurrection they believed that when you died that you kind of have some kind of ethereal existence in sheol that you're you're there but you're you've not got a body but you're just mysteriously there and to some extent this is what many People have argued over the centuries in the Christian tradition that has been a Hellenization of the gospel. In other words, when most Christians think about, well, what happens when you die? He says, we go to heaven. And we tend to think of it being like, well, I'm going to be there on the clouds and, you know, playing harps. and We're going to have this kind of ethereal existence. Ghost-like. Disembodied. And that's what the Greeks believed. So when confronted with this whole idea of Jesus bodily resurrected, I mean, him being God, they could just about allow it. But for us, no way. But we'll come to that again. So why were... So having kind of generally dealt with what did the Greeks actually believe, and Corinth being a chief city of the Greeks... That's culturally what they were, that's culturally what Paul was up against. What was Corinth like as a city? Like I said, it was a leading city. One commentator, I think rightly puts it, it was like the Las Vegas of its time. Or New York, or Los Angeles. It was an important city because when people thought of it, all of a sudden, it brings certain things to mind. Not just the architecture or the famous buildings that were there, but a particular type of lifestyle. I always raised eyebrows when Christians said they wanted to go to Las Vegas. (laughs) I shouldn't have, but I did. I used to think, what are you going to Las Vegas for? Gambling and, you know. <laughs> and that's what we do. We, we think of certain things that we do when we go to certain places. Thinking of it, you know, the guys say, let's get together and run to Paris. You'd almost like thinking, what am I going to Paris with you for? I'm going with the missus. <laughs> Certain places bring certain lies. And that's what would have happened when somebody was like saying, I'm going to Corinth. If you, it was, there was a popular term that when people went to Corinth that they were Corinthianized. And very much like that phrase, Californication. I'm going to California. And that kind of word was like, well, we know what you're going there for. So what was happening? Well, in Paul's letter, he is taking the time to deal with the bleeding in of the culture into the church. In other words, the church was looking so much like regular Corinthian life that Paul needed to start to deal with it and unravel it and get it out. What was the problem? Obviously, this is not a denial of culture outright. But there were certain cultural practices that were not compatible with the gospel. And what is the problem? Well, we end up having a culture that validates its own version of the gospel. In other words, we take our cultural values and the things that are important to us as we grow up and the things that the society around us tells us, well, this is the important issues of our own age. And we, the church, latch onto to it and rather than challenging it and seeing what the gospel says about it, we take it in and say, well, it's more important to be relevant than to be ostracized from society and culture. So it's just easier to just go with the flow. The problem is that it ought to be the other way around, that the gospel validates our culture and validates the type of culture we ought to have. So it might mean that I have my bun and cheese. God's not against that. But it might be other aspects of culture that I won't bring into my life. Because God says, Richard, that's not good for you as a Christian. It's not good for you as a witness. You hear it often here, don't you? We need to be countercultural in certain issues. And this is the way that we become salt and light for for the world around us. This is an issue for each successive generation. Not just for Paul in the time of Corinth, but every generation of Christians have lived. We need to wrestle with these issues. We need to figure out how do we absorb some of the good aspects of our culture around us and challenge the ones that we know the gospel wants to deal with. And those, those issues constantly revolve. There's time where being in the UK, for example, and it being Protestant, there were issues where you would have found there would have been very little kickback against the culture because those things were already ingrained into British life. But those of us who know, those of us today know that many of those things are being kicked against. The UK, to varying speeds, are trying to move away from its Protestant background. And we need to realize what those issues are and come up with our own ways of dealing with them. If we allow the culture to completely dictate to us, we will end up fading away into irrelevance. We will just be like them. And there will be no point us really saying that we're a church And a city sit on a hill. Because now everything is really flat. The church does have a key role to play in culture and in our societies, though. It has an important role to play. But the reality is, is that what we need to realize probably a little bit more than we often do. As, has been always, as is always the case, that we can't be cool on every issue. This was my problem when I didn't want to become a Christian. I, I believed, but I, I didn't want to not look cool in school. And this is it. We want to seem cool on every issue. This is why there's been a rising of liberal liberal theology always throughout the church. We want to blend in. We want to seem relevant. But for that same reason as I just made before, it would actually make us irrelevant. We need to gain confidence that our narrative is the best narrative. As people who are properly saying now, we need to tell the better story of how we can live our lives. We need to tell a better story about ethnicity and how God wants us to be together. We need to tell a better story about sex and how God has made sex to be a blessing and not to be a place of confusion. We need to tell that better story for sure. So what does this culture hold dear? Well, if I had to make my own assessment, and I have, and I've prepared it for you, these are the kind of things that we deal with. We we live in a world today where today is whole today is held as being more important over tomorrow. The immaterial is held as less important than the material. And sciences have the monopoly. On reason and faith is relegated to irrationality to name just a few things so how do we respond to these things well does that mean that now we just in terms of being counterculture what we do is we say oh actually tomorrow is more important than today the immaterial is more important than the material That faith has the monopoly on reason. It would be wrong. If that's what the church of the world thought that we believed. Let's run to heaven. Heaven is the place where we need to be. And, you know, this material life, we want to get away from it. You know, why are you there, you know, um, trying to do all your logical stuff? Just Believe. (laughs) and that's what many people think the church it says there are churches that do actually say that but the true church never really says that if you listen to it carefully the true church says today is important because it leads into our tomorrow The material and the immaterial are both important because there are two components that make up the reality that makes life enjoyable. I am a body, but if I have a body but I have no soul, my body would be useless. If I was a soul that had no body, again, that soul would be useless, it would be pointless. Existence is made up of both the material and the immaterial, and we want to hold that intention. What do we do with the sciences? We need both science and faith. They are both aspects of reason that they both feed into each other. There's no point us as Christians battling the sciences if what they say is true. My Bible tells me very little about dinosaurs. There's no point in me building up arguments saying they must be false. But we also hold that there are things that we believe and know because we just know them. And this is one of the things that people have always wrestled with. We always know as human beings which way is up. People say there is a better way. There is a a way in which we ought to do things. I ought not to kill my neighbor. I ought not to lie. I ought not to steal. I ought not to do various things. So as casual as they can be with the law, there still seems to be a law that props us up. And they can't tell you where that has come from. The church, if it's doing its job, holds those things in tension, and we get people to understand that. Having done a bit of that groundwork, let's jump into our text. I want to briefly go through it. I cannot make the comments I would like to make on each part of this text, but I want it to build to my application, which I think is, is good. So let's skip through it, get there, and see what the Lord might do in mine and your life. All right, verses 1 and 2, what's he doing here? So we've got uh, three sections here. The first section, Paul now builds up his argument. And it's interesting now, having come to the end of his letter, the first thing he wants to mention, now I want to preach to you the gospel. How many are you aware that the gospel was not a once and for all event? I heard it, I responded to it, I'm now here, I don't really need to hear it again, and then when I see people come towards me who want to preach the gospel, I will oh, please, I'm already there, don't worry brother or sister. We need the gospel all the time. We need to remind ourselves what it is that is saved because that's exactly what Paul says, that in which you are being saved. In other words, it's a present continuous. The gospel is continuing to save us, and we need to be reminded of it constantly. Jesus died for my sins? Wow. Constantly. Why? We all live in the world. We go to work, we go to school, we go to college, we, we chill out in our community, we go shopping, and we are constantly rubbing up against the world. We're constantly watching TV and um, listening to people's conversations and getting involved, and so often it chips away at what we believe. And we start to believe certain things like, you know, the gay guy at work, you know, he's such a nice guy. Well, surely God isn't really judging him. Which has a degree of truth, but at the same time is that he's still in sin. Just like the guy who is womanizing is still in sin. It chips away at us. And this is what Paul is doing. He's like saying, I want to remind you of the gospel finally in which you're being saved. Don't let the world wash away those things in which you initially believed in. Like the sea eroding away the rock and eroding away the coastline, it's gradual sometimes. Sometimes it's swift. We just have one of them weeks and all of a sudden we don't feel like we're a believer anymore, right? (laughs) Get hit on so many sides. But for many of us, it's, it's a gradual thing. We, we kind of look back after a year and we realize I'm not as enthusiastic about this life that I have, this gospel I believe, as I used to be. Your zeal has diminished. We need to be refreshed in the gospel. I also believe that what Paul is doing, and we come to it as we get to the end of the text, is actually trying to get to the heart of the matter. I mean, there, there are probably issues of plenty, probably more than Paul could do in one letter. But he wants to get to the heart of the matter, and I believe that what he's doing now is actually showing the root of why all of these problems are happening. Why this culture has been allowed to bleed into them. But moving along, Verses three and five appears. I mean, and, and, and commentators are pretty much um, clear on this. It's an early Christian creed, so he's actually telling them, "This is the creed again. This is what we believe." And it seems that he's pointing to a particular part of the creed which deals with the resurrection. So here he does, he outlines the creed again and if you've been involved in any of the high churches or even sometimes the the low churches like the Baptists and stuff have their own creeds and they stand up and they say the creed together. Paul highlights a part of this early Christian creed which which relates to the resurrection and then he wants to expound on it. So that's what first 3 and 5 is about 3 to 5 is about 6 to 7 now he wants to deal with the objective data of that resurrection now he now goes I'm done with the creed now I want to know I actually know that so many of the people that actually did witness him about 500 of them are still alive today in other words there are people who I know you could talk to today in Paul's time obviously who could tell you that Jesus Christ has indeed raised from the dead. For people at the time, this was significant. Just like you, if you were living in that time, you could say, what? You mean I could try and find some of these guys and interview them? If you're the journalists amongst you could go and actually find out if these things were true, like Lee Strobel? Let me go and find out. For us today... It's different. We now have to rely upon the written words of of a Paul, a Peter, a John, to name but a few, who actually have left a written account that these things are true. What does John say in in his gospel? I have written and I'm telling you my testimony is true. That these things happened. If that's not enough for you, We either believe it or don't believe it. But we have written accounts that help us today to say there are people who testify and put, as it were, hand to heart and say, I know these things are true. I'm a rational, reasonable human being, and I know that Jesus is alive. Verses 8 to 11, now Paul switches from the objective data that uh, outside of himself and now turns and says, now I personally have met Jesus. Now I personally can testify that he is alive. I was not born in the time, I was not born again at the time where I was able to verify the things that these other people can verify, but one being born out of season, I have now seen Jesus for myself and I can tell you from my own witness, that he is alive. <laughs> he does that every now, every now and then. <laughs> but can I make a side point here? Paul highlighting his untimeliness of, his birth, of him not being born again at the time of Jesus' ministry. He now makes an argument for his zeal. I don't know if you, when I was getting up in church and, you know, when people made those arguments about why I should be getting up and dancing in church and all the rest of it. He says that, you know, when you were at football, you used to jump and, and, and scream. And when you were at the rave, you used to jump and scream. And then when you come to church, all of a sudden... That energy diminishes. I used to I used to get frustrated at those arguments, but Paul is making that exact same argument. With the zeal in which I persecuted the church, I then switched it around and then wanted to use that to the glory of God. I have no reason to be mild in my Christian life. It's right there, isn't it? I used that zeal. Look how hard I I, I hunted. I would go to Damascus. Notice, Damascus was just down the road in comparison to where Paul went when he was a missionary. I want to go to Spain, the very end of the world. In those times. (laughs) The Americas and all that being, um, quote, unquote, undiscovered. There were people there, but yeah, (laughs) you know. But he went even further for the gospel. Why am I going to be mild now? What does that say about my being convinced? I was prepared to do this for God, but now I'm not prepared to do this for God. I thought it was important to mention that. Moving on to the next section. Now we have a new section. Now Paul makes an argument where he's appealing to logic. And if you were a Greek at this time, he is now playing them at their own game. He is now taking their premise which is there is no resurrection or no bodily resurrection from the dead. And now he's like saying, well, actually, let me take on that opinion and let me see where we can go with that. All right, there's no resurrection of the dead, no bodily resurrection. Let me now play that through for you. Verses 12 to 14. Well, Paul proclaims that his preaching then must be false because he has predicated it on the fact that there was a bodily resurrection as being central to the gospel. In other words, he's trying to deal with this whole idea that, all right, okay, if Christ has actually bodily resurrected, they could concede that because if he's God, he can do anything. But it doesn't mean that he's going to do the same for me. God can do whatever he wants to do. But the problem is, is that you see what you're doing as he's playing out their logic? You're limiting what God can do you're limiting the fact that he can raise me as well. How often will you do that? You know, I remember the old Mahalia Jackson song, isn't it? What he has done for others, he will do for you. He can do it. Why are you putting limits in God? Is he bad mind like that? You know, I'm going to go and prepare myself a big meal. I'm going to eat that. I'm going to be all right. But you guys can sit out there and watch me. (laughs) He's not bad mind. What does he actually say? I actually long for you guys to. I'm looking forward to the kingdom where we will be able to sit down and eat this communion meal together. He's not bad mind like that. He now continues this line of argument to state that, basically, that if I've now put words—this is um, dealing with verses 15 to 16—if I have now saying that God has done something that He actually hasn't done, he says I'm now misrepresenting God. I'm lying, basically, for God's sake. God hasn't really done anything, but yet I'm styling out like He has. In other words, I'm filling you with false promises. And actually putting myself in danger with God. Putting words in his mouth. 17 to 18. So if Christ is in fact dead, then every believer is still a sinner. So he's now unpacking that because in a sense, the resurrection is the triumph over sin. He is the perfect sacrifice in which sin could not keep him dead. And later on, he will unpack what this means further as he deals with Adam and what the sin of Adam meant and why death came into the world and why it was important that Jesus actually resurrected to say that what Adam did is no longer having the power over humankind. He says, You're still in your sins. As far as God is concerned, because there is no atonement, there is no triumph in the cross. You're still dead in your sins. It's not enough because if you look at the line of argument of Hebrews, it means I mean, then you're basically just saying it was just Jesus was just another sacrifice, just a human kind. None of those bulls, none of those goats, none of those sheep raised from the dead. Jesus did, though. He also goes on to lambaste the belief that, well, basically, if there is no real bodily resurrection, there can't even be an ethereal one either. An outer body existence, an outer body living in Sheol, like we see in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and, and all the rest of it. There's none of that which even that alludes to a bodily resurrection or a bodily being in Sheol. None of it, even your Greek version of the afterlife doesn't really have any validity. Death actually leads to oblivion. Using your logic. Verse 19, said, if this life is all there really is, so basically he said, if this is all there is, very much like Job and the preacher in Ecclesiastes, then this life is to be pitiful. Is pitiful. If this is all there is, if this is my one chance to get a blessing, it is this is my one chance at life, how many people have been on their deathbreads in regret? How many people have maybe even been a bit relieved that their time has come, even amidst all the fear? If this is all there is, like the preacher, like Job, we can only descend into despair. What's there to look forward to? You know, I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you're thinking, well, I haven't hit my career goal. I haven't, you know, quite got that married or I'm not, never kind of reached there in my happiness with my my current spouse. Or I wish I had gone to the gym more. (laughs) All kinds of regrets fill us. And then, as we get older and older, we're actually thinking, oh well, I gave it my best shot anyway. It doesn't matter now. We are to be pitied because not many of us really can look back on our lives and say, you know what, actually, from start to finish, it has been a blast. the real YOLO dream, <laughs> you know, or even better still, you know, I'm, I'm one of the uh, poster childs for one of these holiday things where you've done everything, the adventure, the adventure life, you know, not many of us experience that, then we come to the next section, now Paul ends in the middle of this this second section, he ends his argument from his opponent's faults and then he resumes this whole idea. But Christ has actually risen. So now he now that he's brought you down into despair, based on your on your logical conclusions. Now that I've followed your line of argument, I want to now take us back to the beginning. My gospel. Christ has actually indeed risen. And because of that. He is now the first fruits. Verse 20. What does first fruits mean? Well, if in an agrarian culture, the first fruits is the fruit that you take at the beginning of a harvest, just as you're going about to harvest, you taste it and you say, Is this gonna be a good harvest? The first ripe fruit, take it, eat it. Mm, it's a good harvest. For those a little bit older, the man from Del Monte, he said, Yes, you get the idea. I want I want more of those peaches in my tins to go to the public. For those of you who don't know that, and basically, Jesus is a trailer for a full length feature that's yet to come out. And yes, he is the best bits. And yes, I already know that there are trailers that are rubbish. And, or good, and then the movie is rubbish. Or we look at the trailer and we say, they tell us the whole plot. What's the point of going to watch it? But he's a trailer. You want to come watch his movie? ta Big deal. Go and watch it. And this is what he's saying. He is the preview of what is to come. And it's going to be glorious. Yes, Jesus might be the best bit, but he ought to be. We get to live in that story with him. We get to be part of that harvest with him. If Jesus is the juiciest fruit, if my juiciness is as half as juicy as his, I can live with that. He's Jesus. <laughs> How does he build upon this? He says, well, as Adam in verse 22 was a preview of what we could have been before the fall, nonetheless, what followed his ex- we follow his example as well. In other words, we have similar experiences in life as Adam has because he was the preview for the whole human race. And so as Adam has problems in life, problems with his children, problems with the missus. So we also have problems and then we die. Exactly what Job says. Life is filled with problems and then we die. <laughs> that's what we had to look forward to. That He was the preview, so that's why it's important to get stuck into Genesis because this is what life will be like. This is it. But thank God for Jesus, who is Adam, Mark 2.0. He is the new preview. The new man. The trademark, as we deal with um, 23 to 28 now, that's that section there that's quite technical, but at the same time it means this. As the death was the trademark of the first Adam, so life would be the trademark of the new Adam. In other words, I believe... This is my interpretation of it, that death was a consequence of the first Adam's disobedience to suppress sin. In other words, his sin, if God allowed people to live forever and ever, if God he never took away the tree of life, so to speak, the ability to possibly live forever, then this world, well, we wouldn't well, we would even have reached 2018, right? We would have killed each other. Or we'd be living in madness because we couldn't die. It would be like hell, right? You ever remember that movie Hellraiser? You're there dying a death over and over again and, you know, don't let me put that picture in your mind, actually. Let me move away from that quickly. So death was, a, was to quell and suppress sin and the, and the repercussions of it. But Christ will now give life. He now says, I'm reversing all of that. So if you can imagine that all are now that, you know, we almost like life is like back masking, as we've experienced it, and we quite quite make sense of life. All of a sudden, God, through Jesus' resurrection now, that tape now plays the proper way around. You are blessed of God. Holy, holy, holy. All those chews that we see in Revelation start to play. This is what we ought to have been hearing. No more back masking anymore. No more. The chew now plays clearly and everything is totally reversed. We've got to get that picture in our mind. It has been reversed. Why? Because the righteous life should not have an end. The blessed life should not have an end. There should never be an end to singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. In everything we do, there would be no end. Because why would God want to bring an end to righteous living? This is Paul's argument. This final section. Paul now argues again in a way it's more it's to what is i guess people use and describe it as to the man in other words he argues with a more uh, emotional content now he's trying to provoke them who he knows personally and based on that so we tend to like do this in our arguments as well we know the things that we that kind of prod people and so we now start to appeal to their soft spots and jab at them So now he changes his tone and his pace. And this is what he says. In, tw- in verse 29, we do not know what the baptism of the dead means. No one really can figure it out. It's quite new. No one really knows about what the practice of the time. So let's skip over that because we can go nowhere with it. It doesn't condone it. It doesn't tell us that he shouldn't do it, but in Paul's logic, it says that it's illogical that if there is no real resurrection from your perspective, then why even bother get baptised for the dead? Paul just sees it as an illogical, irrelevant act. Whether we should do it, if there genuinely is, I don't think there's any sanction for it. Verse 30 to 32. Why would Paul allow himself... Now he says, Why would I allow myself to be put in danger? You know the kind of things I've gone through. You know that my lifestyle, I've been beaten for this gospel. I'm dealing with men who really want to wring my life out of me. There were, when you read the book of Acts, there were Pharisees that followed Paul around just to cause trouble. Always whispering in some governor's ear, we ought to get that man. That man's a troublemaker. Don't allow him into your into your town. Don't allow him into your city. Deal with him. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. <laughs> when we read about the Ephesus account, the people gathering, you know, singing, great is old Aphrodite of the, was it Aphrodite actually, wasn't it? But the reality is, they were going for his life. He now says, Why would I put myself through that if what I'm believing is a lie? You yourself know my lifestyle. Why would I continue on in it if all I can have is trouble? Paul really cuts to the heart here because this is, I think, an important point. If you don't believe in the resurrection and the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of all believers, don't be a Christian. And he says, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, right? Don't bother. There are many liberal Christians who are look at there and say, don't bother. Why, why put morals on yourself that don't amount to a hill of beans? Cheat if you can cheat. Try to get ahead if you can. Sleep with him or her if you can't get away with it. What difference does it make? There is no God that's going to finally bring your body back to life and judge you. I think it's a serious statement. If you don't believe in this as a central, a central doctrine of the Christian faith, no point. You might come to church for the social setting, but the reality is why even waste your time? Why even try to get up early on a Sunday morning? Why even own a Bible? Save your 10 pound, 20 pound, go get a coffee. Why? That's the logic of his argument. If you don't believe in the resurrection, don't bother. There's nothing to look forward to. (laughs) And then in 33 to 34, this is what he turns around and says now. How ultimately he says, you're basically your company. And it comes right back to that point I said at the beginning. Look at who you're hanging out with. Look at how you're allowing the culture. Look at how you're being won over by the arguments of people and saying, basically, I can't believe in that type of God. All their little theodicy issues, you know, if God is such a God of love, and why does he allow this to happen in the world? And we start to go, yeah, it's true, you know. It's true, you know. I don't know, I can't figure that one out. Those conversations are corrupting our good morals because now, like when the Satan whispered into the ears of Eve, we are now thinking, well, is really God good? Does he really love me? Why bother? (coughs) Evil communication is corrupting good manners or good morals. What does it mean? Does it mean that we now push out all non-Christian or or, or people we feel that don't quite encourage us in the faith and not quite got all the points of the gospel right? I don't think that we don't, we shouldn't take that into a general rule. Paul is just trying to stop something here that right at this present moment in time is rolling like a roller coaster right through the Corinthian church. And the only way to stop it is to put a hard stop on it. We need to stop listening to what your culture is telling you about what Christianity can and cannot be. And if you're in that place, then that will be the correct thing to do. Put a stop on all of it. Stop it. Turn it off. Tell them I'm not seeing you anymore. Put the phone down. If you're struggling, stop. If you're in a good place, if you're in 1 Peter 3.15, being able to give a defense, talk to them by all means because now you have the ability to influence them. It's not a general rule. Oh, you can't talk to non-believers. It depends on where you are. And if you're in a good place, you ought to engage. Oh, you don't believe in afterlife? Oh, all right, okay then. Let's talk that through. You don't believe that Jesus lived? Well, come on, let's talk that through. And like Paul, like a master, you can run them through their logic. If this and this and this and this and you believe in good, and all, it don't all make no sense. And then everyone's going away. Oh, I don't know. And then their atheist people are saying, "You got to talk these people off. They're gonna." <laughs> and then it all works in reverse. shut them off. Don't let these Christians speak to you. I I have my counterpart too, on the other side. They have their champions too. don't listen to them depending on where you are in your life you ought to so let's get to application what does this all mean as we look to this resurrection Sunday what's the significance how do we revive it in us where it's a joyous thing it's a thing in which we say without this we are literally without hope how do I revive hope well firstly we need to appreciate the centrality of the bodily Remember the bodily resurrection of all believers. As far as Paul concerned, we do not believe, if we do not believe it, we may as well not be Christians. Why? Because this is all there is. Secondly, as Christians, we need to start reclaiming the dynamism of a bodily resurrection for all believers. We need to get off this thing of, I'm going to heaven. We really do. Oh, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to be in heaven. No, we are going to heaven, via via heaven, to the new heaven and the new earth. Life revives again. Goes back to Genesis 1, but better. For all of you who don't believe you've traveled enough... Guess what? There's going to come a time where you're going to see probably not just the world. You might see the whole galaxy, then the Milky Way, like Star Trek, without the atheism. We need to start getting creative about what that life might look like. We need to start thinking of it in ways where, well, you know what? Life is disappointing, but you know what? It's going to be great one day. We need to get into that place. Why? Like a track I saw years ago, which said, heaven sounds boring. We need to get away from this thing about harps and sitting there and singing in an eternal concert. You know, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, God, it's got to stop sometime, right? (laughs) I want to get on and do some other stuff. We need to move away from these things of thinking that as I'm eating eating the food that God has provided for me, I am praising him. As I'm conversating with people, I am praising him. I'm enjoying the life that he has given me the way he has designed me to enjoy it. And all of that is saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Let me quote from you First Corinthians 2, 9b, and it says this. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, Paul uses that earlier in the letter to describe about how the wisdom of men do not actually comprehend the things that God are doing. But I think it's relevant here too. I think it's relevant in the sense of we need to start imagining and then imagine how much better it will be that God, of the things that God has prepared for us, who love him. Romans eight twenty eight: all things working together for good to those that love. Christ Jesus, and are called according to his purpose. All things. You've experienced this a point in your life? Watch that swing around. I like to do it this way. How do I imagine these things, you might say, Richard. Well, I know you've been there, and I know you've had those experiences too. But there have been times and moments... And I give thanks for C.S. Lewis because he, he was the one who was able to kind of, as he writes, to be able to see this a bit more clearly. There have been moments where I've shared. Maybe I've been on holiday. Maybe I've just been in this place where I'm sitting down, I'm drinking, I'm with family or friends. And I have this moment where it just feels like this is great. What a great moment. The sun is setting. The weather is perfect. I'm eating some great food. A Guinness to hand. (laughs) And I'm like going, this is fantastic. And in my mind, I start thinking, I wish this moment will never end. I wish this moment can continue on. It's the sign, as Lewis would put it, of the distant country. We are now in that very moment in their experiencing earth without sin. A moment of clarity. We start to see in those moments how God intended life to be. No malice around, everybody enjoying themselves. Weather is perfect, all is well with the world. That's a new heaven and a new earth, but better. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, I want to pray for my family here today, Lord. That you will give them a bigger vision. And a better imagination about what life with you will look like. Not to diminish the life that we currently have. Because Lord, as I said, we experience these great moments and we ought to cherish today. Only because of what it will mean for tomorrow. Father, I give thanks because Lord, I want to pray even over those Maybe those bitter moments we have, those bitter experiences that we're we're going through, Lord, which we think that, well, Lord, how can I enjoy life with this over it, Lord? I want to pray, Father, for those and who isn't included. Where we have moments where we feel like I haven't had as better time, at the best time I possibly can have. Let us start to believe when you wipe away all tears, that it really means that, there, Lord God. Help us to start to envision that, Lord God, if this life is not all there is, then hope really has a place in my life. I ought to be hopeful. And not in a vaguely optimistic way there, Lord God, but in a genuine, Lord, life will continue. And all those things I think have been left undone will actually be done. All those relationships I think that I have left in tatters will actually, as they are saved with me, dear Lord, that they, I will actually be able to revive that. Those moments I've had which I thought should never have ended, dear Lord God, they won't end. Lord, what a mighty God you are. That, Father, that you will not put a time limit on righteousness. On righteous living. Thank you, Lord. Because you said you will do this. And you've shown us that Jesus Christ on this Resurrection Sunday is the down payment. He is the first fruit. He is the trailer to a life. That will be better. Help us to rejoice in that, Lord, I pray. To rejoice in your son. Rejoice in the presence of your spirit, dear Lord God, that reminds us of of these things. And for you, Father, who are drawing us to yourself. Blessed be your name. And let your will be done. In each and every one of us. Amen.